Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at FunkinStuff.net and on YouTube. Truth and Rhythm can now also be enjoyed on the go in its audio podcast edition from FunkinStuff.net, iTunes, and other leading providers. I'm your host, Scott Dr. G. Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide to Funk. Got to get your copy if you don't have one yet. Whether you're listening or watching, I thank you so much for your continued support and interest in keeping this music alive. And tuning in today, you're going to get rewarded because my guest is keyboardist Morris Hayes, a central member of Princess Camp and New Power Generation Band for more than 20 years between 1989 and 2012. He has a distinction as serving the longest tenure in the MPG. And I believe the longest tenure of any Prince band member, I think beating out both Dr. Fink of the Revolution and sax player Eric Leeds. Besides contributing amazing keyboard parts in both studio and stage, Morris was associated with Prince during several pivotal, uh, pivotal, <laughs> pivotal periods and events in his personal and professional life. That time frame includes Prince's high profile feud with Warner Brothers, where he changed his name to a symbol and a slave on his face. Opening up Glam Slam nightclubs, his marriage, loss of child, and separation from MPG member Maite Garcia, his change in faith and renouncement of profanity, and experimentations with music clubs and album releases and distribution. Musically, the period included albums such as Come, The Gold Experience, Emancipation, Raven to the Joy Fantastic, The Rainbow Children, 3121, Lotus Flower, and MPL Sound, Planet Earth in 2010 under Prince's name, and then also Exodus and New Power Soul under the New Power Generation name. As a devout fan since hearing Soft and Way in 1978 and having attended dozens of live performances, for my money, none of Prince's bands surpassed the funk power of the 1994 to 1996 lineup of The Man on Guitar, Sonny T on Bass, Michael Bland on Drums, Tommy Barbarella on Keyboards, and none, none other than Mr. Hayes, Morris that is, on those key uh, on those keys playing them to death so with all that morris turn to you how are you fantastic man thanks for having me on man hey so appreciate it so i understand you're coming from your uh home neck of the woods arkansas today yeah man i'm uh back in my hometown you know where it all started and uh uh it's, it's, it's pretty cool i don't get here very often and i'm going to try to work on that but it's, it's good to be back home you know yeah Good to hear. So, you know, I'm all decked out for today. I got the uh, MPG shirt, and I think you'll recognize yeah. someone right there. Yeah, I saw that. That's the T-shirt where they caught me sleeping on my keyboard, man, and then made a T-shirt out of it. That's pretty. Gotta <laughs> yeah, put some Z's on there. <laughs> exactly. And then I had to show you this. Oh man, that's dope, son. Yeah, that was uh, my wife Jill. That she had that when we were in California about ten wow. years ago. Because um, our, our son was named after MPG. It's Nathan Parker Goldfine. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. That's dope, man. I like that. So I should wear it around my neck with this, right? I know. Get you a nice chain and drop that around your neck, dude. That's cool. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Very cool. Well, so glad to have you aboard. And, uh, you know, if you're good to go, I'd like to get into some questions. Absolutely, man. Cool. So... Speaking of Arkansas, Morris, tell me about your upbringing a little bit and how and when did you get into music? Well, it's, it's interesting, man. You know, around my house, you know, my mom had a piano since you know, we were like small kids and everything. And she, she was more of a singer, but she, she always wanted to learn how to play. But um, the piano was there. And then eventually, you know, I started playing a little bit at church, you know. Um, that's where it kind of all started, you know, just playing at church. And so... Uh, as time went on, you know, I played a little bit and, and uh, you know, it wasn't that good and anything, but, you know, church is like, it's not about how good you are, it's just you're willing to be able to participate. And and so, uh, you know, everybody's like, oh, that's okay, baby, that's all right, you know, and uh, and that was pretty terrible. But, uh, of course, as time went on, you know, you hopefully you, anything you do enough, you start getting better at it. And, and I, you know, I just started uh, working with better musicians and, 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 and people who, you know, at my church there and... Um, and then when I got to college, you know, 
uh, other people who were, you know, more formidable musicians, you know, that started to kind of help me find my way, you know. So did you ever have any formal uh, lessons or training or it was all that stuff you picked up? You know, it's funny. I took lessons for about, seems like a, a couple months or something. And I remember uh, I just wasn't super interested in it. And I, I remember um, just memorizing what she, the, the teacher would show me, like she show me the lesson. And, I, and you know, you, you, they give you the lesson and then you take that week and then you come back the next, you know, whatever, a week later and play it. I just would memorize it when she played it and then just uh, just come back and play it. And she finally, after about a few weeks, she figured it out. She said, uh, I think you're memorizing the songs and you're just playing it from memory. She said, but that's amazing because, uh, you know, I can't play from ear. I have to read the notes. And she said, the fact that you can listen to me play it and then come back here a week later and play the song is kind of crazy. But she figured it out. And so, you know, I was kind of more into sports. I wanted to play basketball. And so... Uh, you know, I was like, eh, music is kind of secondary or tertiary. You know, I, I wasn't really super interested in, in that. And so it, it was really, that was really all that I did. And I really didn't garner a lot out of that as far as uh, just the basic stuff, but not like really like chord chart reading or anything like that. So when did music kind of become central from basketball and everything else? And you know, when did you kind of get, you know, your own really nice instrument and, and, and get rolling with that? Well, I, I would have to say where it really, I think where it really got, where I was like, yeah, I think I could do this is when where I was in college in uh, 1981. And and we had a, you know, had a little college band. A lot of the guys have, you know, gone on to be, you know, singers in Tower Power, a group called the Mac Band in the 80s. Uh, that was a big thing for Ellie and Babyface. And, 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 um, one of the other guys was one of the background singers for the Fabulous Thunderbirds. And just like everybody ended up going on doing some bigger stuff. But I think when it really turned the corners, you know, when we were in that college band, we had a keyboard player in the band uh, named Shelby Henry. He was like, the, he was the cat. He was the, the good player. And I just had, I was in the band because I had some equipment. And I was, you know, it was just like, just a cool factor for me. But he ended up having to leave. And he was the principal keyboard player. And so they were like, we had a, uh, fundraiser coming up that Bill Clinton was running for governor and uh, we had this fundraiser that he was doing and, and we, our band was playing at the fundraiser and uh, they're like well dude you got to learn the parts or you're gonna look crazy because you're the keyboard player now and so you got to pull it off and so I had to kind of woodshed to actually learn the songs we had been already playing because I was just doing nothing man just nothing and so I just had to like you know, kind of like get all of this material together. And then, you know, we, we pulled it off and, you know, and it was, we had two keyboard players and then we only had me. And then, uh, you know, after we did it, it was like a relief and like, wow, you know, that was really cool. Like, I think, you know, I really could do this, you know, that's when it, it really piqued my interest because I, I think I, the, the gratification of like pulling it off number one. And the fact that it's like, it's, if you take it seriously, then you have to, you know, then it's, then it's cool. You know, it's not about just being a cool guy and, picking up girls or whatever. It was just like, it's really cool to, to be able to do this and play this. And, you know, this guy was running for governor who, you know, subsequently now we know he went on to be president of the United States. So it, it was a cool thing. And I think that's where it really just started to get more serious. Like, you know, I need to think about doing this, you know, for real. What, what would have a set list been like at that time? Oh man, it was like, I can tell you, it was cameo. Uh, we played some Prince. We played some, uh, uh, you know, uh, just all of the groups back at that point were like the, you know, it was the early '80s, and so we were just, it was just the, like funk lineup. You know, some of the guys um, definitely were Prince influence, and some were like uh, Peebo Bryson, like uh, you know that kind of a flavor. Uh, I remember our guy LB who ended up going on singing with the uh, Tower Power and now he's like, with the Temptations. You know, people Bryson was his speed and, and you know, and Luther Vandross later on and that sort of thing. And so he had that kind of flavor, but, uh, and like LTD, you know. Uh, Jeffrey Jeffrey Osborne. Osborne. Yeah. That kind of flavor. That's he was doing stuff like that in school. And, and then uh, the other guy, Greg Sane and, and Derek McCampbell, who, uh, Derek was in that group, the Mac Band, that Babyface, one of their LA and Babyface early productions was in that group, the Mac Band. Uh, they had a song, Big Hit, called Roses Are Red. And he, uh, they were more in the Prince area. So they, they would do some Prince songs. And so that was definitely, um, 
uh, a big deal, you know. Uh, definitely a big deal, you know. So, so that was very cool. So, um, so once you got into it like that, who were some of your early influences, Morris? Well, some of, it's funny because I, I love Stevie and, and Earth, Wind, and Fire, you know. But the thing is, man, I really loved, uh, you know, uh, Stevie a lot because he was great, and Ray Charles was always one of my favorites. And so that was a big deal for me. It, it was like Ray Charles was like, uh, he, he was one of the first artists that moved me. You know, he had a lot of soul and uh, that was a big thing to me. And, and um, I, 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 you know, I could feel his energy when he would sing and that, you know, uh, you know, aside from being in church, that was the, the first artist that kind of made me feel the emotion of music, you know. And, uh, and I, I, of course I liked Prince at that point. It was kind of new and the time, you know, was a big thing. And we, like, we thought the thing, the cool, factor to the time was cool and and I did like funk so we like cameo we like Ohio players parliament funkadelic and of course James Brown so all of those in Sly Stone was all big influences back in that time yeah well I would say I was thinking it's, it's hard to narrow it down but my top five of all time might be like Prince and Stevie and Herbie and um, P-Funk and Ohio yeah. players that five right there can't go wrong with those. <laughs> I can't go wrong, brother. So from there, uh, Morris, step me through uh, some of your early career. You know, what'd you get into from there? And then get me to the point where you were, you know, in the neighborhood of, of the Minneapolis sound. Well, well, I mean, the thing is, once I got through the college years, man, uh, well, at least the early college part of it with that band, I ended up transferring to Chicago. But while I was playing at church in like 1979, I went to this, uh, this other church in Tennessee and my aunt, who was my mom's sister, went to this church called Fellowship. And it was a kind of, uh, of a big, uh, a big, a big church, you know? And, and so uh, it was like, for me, that was a big deal because I was able to, um, meet this minister that was at the church and i remember going up to him and said hey my aunt sings in your church and uh, i'm going to go to school up there and i'm going to come and you know uh to your church and he said well young man you come on you know and a couple years later i ended up going and and uh he remembered me it was crazy because i went and sat on the seat you know they call you up to say you know we want to you know who wants to join church whatnot and i sat on the bench and uh and then he he said hey this is the young man i met down in tennessee and he said he was going to come here and he turned around to his uh, his his, his uh, musicians, which is some of the best in Chicago. And he said, "I want y'all to take him." And he's a good young man, and and uh, he's he's a you know a good player, whatever. And he said, "I want y'all to take him and, and take him." And he's gonna be on the music staff, you know. And that really, I mean, they were the best in Chicago. And and I think being under their tutelage from some of those guys, uh, everybody in Chicago knew who those guys were. You know, Mickey and and uh, 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 Michael, uh, Mike. And everybody and, and Ralph, the, you know, the, the uh, Reverend Son was just super cool and, and just really kind of got me on the synthesis and Fender Rose kind of thing because everybody was fighting over the piano and organ. And so that kind of took me in, down the synthesis road because nobody wanted to be in that lane and I was trying to find the space. And that's what kind of got me on the synth space. Um, and, and that turned the corner for me. So that was really big. And then uh, from that point, being around, you know, some of those church the gospel artists and, and gospel musicians, some of the biggest in the game came to our church and so I just got a chance to play with like the Hawkins and the Winans and like all of the big artists of the gospel time you know and then work with those musicians and I think that just elevated my game and then later on I'd say in the, in the, in the early to mid 80s I ended up getting called by some, some of my guys from my frat brother from college down in Memphis and they had a deal with Motown uh, pending and you know they wanted me to come and do some showcase stuff and and I had to make a decision to like move to Memphis and and, and work with this band called Fingerprint. And that really opened the door to where I am now because that was the band that uh, the revolution saw when they came to town and came up after the show. It was like, you know, we see a lot of guys play uh, the music and, and uh, you know, you guys play like we do. You sound like the record. And so they it, that's what formed that relationship right there. So that was, that was really incredible, man, uh, how that all happened. And um, it, that turned the corner because getting with those guys, uh, they, they were very much interested in, in, in 
not being the best local band. They wanted to beat up on Prince. They wanted to beat up on Michael Jackson. So their whole thing was like, we want to be at the top of the game. And so, so just being with them meant I had to listen to the music and really start learning parts and like, like try to make the sounds like it was on the record with the synthesizers that we had. So you had to kind of really get into programming and tweaking to get the sound right so that it was, a, it was almost a perfect written, uh, replication of the record. And, and that was a big deal for them. And I think that's what opened me up. All of those musicians, I mean, they hated me at first because I was a church player and I didn't know any of the secular songs. And they like, God, man, he don't know none of the records, man. This sucks. You know, they didn't want to deal with me, but it ended up working out, man. So it turned out cool. And so um, from what I read, you first uh, were around that scene. You had an appearance with George's band and Graffiti Bridge. Is that right? And then you were part of Maserati. Yeah. So, so. To, to further on with, with that scenario, what happened is when we worked that band Fingerprint, we ended up going and doing demo with Brown Mark, who was the, the basis for the revolution. And, and that kind of got our, our Minneapolis connection. So we were kind of going back and forth to Minneapolis, kind of working with him and, and with the management, this guy named Craig Rice, uh, who managed Prince uh, during the Purple Rain era, uh, road managing and uh, ran the facility there at Paisley Park. And so we ended up just going back and forth uh, uh, you know, kind of doing that. And, and in, in the meantime, we started a new band called Business and moved to Austin, Texas, which was like the mecca for musicians doing stuff. I mean, that was like music mecca for us. And so it was it was a very cool situation. And we just decided that, man, we're going to stay in Texas. And so we ended up opening for Maserati in a few different spots. We opened for them in Memphis. We opened for them in San Antonio and, and kind of like established that relationship. And then I remember getting a call from Craig, who was managing them as well, saying we want to audition and we want you to come to Minneapolis and audition for Maserati. And I did it and then I got in and then we started doing some stuff there. And one thing led to the other. I ended up working with Mark Brown and Mark was shooting a video. He wanted me to be in his band for his record that he had on Motown. And we shot a video in Paisley Park and Prince was kind of like hanging out. And he had seen me around a little bit, kind of hanging out with Mark and those guys. And he'd seen me hanging out. And so his whole thing was, just like check it check it out and um and uh and really uh figure out can i play like this i mean because you're shooting a video you don't know who's actually can play and who actually cannot so it's just that kind of a vibe so um it it, it was really uh, you know interesting that way and so he finally uh, i got a chance because levi who was working on some other stuff with prince during the movie uh, graffiti bridge they were shooting uh, needed some session parts done. He threw me a bone and got me on a session. And I ended up playing on this stuff for the time. And uh, I had been like kind of working at the studio at this point for a bit. And, um, I ne you know, Prince never really even said anything to me. So um, so you're talking about um, um, Maserati and that whole situation and how you got noticed for Graffiti Bridge and take it from there. Yeah, so... Uh, so and doing the session at the time with the, uh, the 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 song I was doing for Graffiti Bridge, uh, that kind of brought the attention of Prince. Uh, he heard the track and so did Alan Leeds, who was uh, running the label at the time. And uh, I got this big compliment. It's funny because I was in the studio and I used to hang out a lot. It's in the studio with the guys who were producing, and you know Prince never would say anything. And uh, uh, this particular day, uh, he said to me, um, um, "That's a nice." Uh, that's a nice solo you did. And and I kind of looked at him and because he never said anything to me before. And I just kind of looked and I kind of looked around like, you talking to me? And he's like, yeah, you did the solo, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh yeah, well, I'm talking to you. And I, and I was like, wow, okay. And so uh, that was like, I was like, that was weird. Cause you know, I've been in here for days and months or whatever, he didn't say anything. And then all of a sudden then that, and that just kind of like turned the corner, I think with him. Cause he's like, okay, he's a real player. He can play. And, um, you know, uh, he, he, it's all good. You know, he's the cat. So it was, it was really cool, um, to, 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 uh, kind of make that transition from being the guy with the walkie talkie driving the van around to now, uh, you know, I get looked at like a musician. And so, uh, from that point, it really morphed into like, I, I had this band with this guy, Greg, who was, uh, the same guy from Memphis who also was in Maserati who came up and was on the lead singers. And uh, we formed a group called G Sharp and the Edge. And we were playing at Prince's Club, the Glam Slam. We were like the house band. 
which is when he decided to take that band and 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 make us Carmen Electra's band to go and tour with them for Diamonds and Pearls uh, as the opening act. And that really is what sealed the deal as far as my uh, different connections to get to the Prince camp. That was the end for me because, you know, Carmen was telling me like, oh man, he likes you. He just like, thinks you're like pretty good. You like, uh, you know, you do all this programming and stuff, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, get out of here, you know? And she's like, no, I'm telling you, he says he's going to get you in this band. And then Maite would tell me the same thing. And, and sure enough, uh, I remember at the end of the tour, I was, we were in London at the, we were doing like, yeah, like eight shows at like, uh, 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 uh man. At the spot we were doing, I think it was Hammersmith. I'm not sure for, for sure, but I think it was Hammersmith. We had like eight shows. And uh, uh, I remember just kind of telling him at the end of it, like, hey, man, it was, really, it was a real pleasure being out here with you on the road and this, that. And he was like, you know, real cryptic. Your work is not done here kind of thing. And I'm like, uh, what does that mean? You know, kind of thing. And sure enough, you know, I, I run into him when I get back stateside uh, at his club. And I run into him and he's like, what's up, grandson? You need a job? Want some work? Hmm. I said, yeah, I'll be over there to mow that yard for you first thing Monday. And he just had a big yuck. And he's like, no, nah, man, I want you to be in the band. And I was like, oh, let me check my Palm Pilot. Yeah, I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, um, so it was cool, man. It was, it was like, uh, but it was kind of scary at the same time. I remember walking to my car and the first half of the way, I was like all elated. And then the second half, I was like scared to death. Like, oh my God, now they're going to know I suck. <laughs> and and now uh, I'm going to be the laughing stock of Minneapolis when I don't make it and this kind of thing. So it was really like a, a double-edged kind of scenario, man, after after kind of getting in. And that was 1992. And at what point did the uh, Mr. Hayes come in where, where he started calling you that on stage? How did that happen? Well, you know, it's funny, man. Uh, you know, me growing up in the church and a lot of stuff, man, a lot of the, the, the jokes that I would make was all a lot of church stuff. And uh, it would be so funny, man, because I, you know, do this whole deacon thing and all of this, like, yeah, you know, just just skits from the church. And so um, it was really um, a thing where we like calling people in church, like Sister This and Brother Hayes and Brother, and he just thought Mr. Hayes you know, uh, was kind of that official kind of thing that people call you, we want to call Deacon Hayes and Mr. Johnson or whatever it is. And so that just kind of stuck. And, uh, you know, it was really funny, but because uh, I was hoping, because I knew that Prince like changes people's names, like Carmen Electra's name, and she, she, her name is actually Tara. And so I'm like, man, I hope this dude ain't gonna try to call me like Fuzzy Grape or something like this. <laughs> and then be this name that's not my name, but it just like, you know, so it was kind of cool that my name was my name, you know, so just like just Mr. Hayes, you know, and so that just worked out, man. And uh, I, yeah, I liked it. So I didn't have to become something else. But I mean, not that, you know, those names are funky. Tommy Barbarella is a funky name. I ain't mad at him, you know, that's a funky name. Uh, but I definitely like Mr. Hayes. You know, that, that's just me, you know. So you were kind of freaked out a little bit. At what point did you kind of settle in and feel like, okay, this is going to be okay. Uh, never. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, I think I, I think the key to one of the keys to my longevity. Uh, I, I really, I honestly, I just said this like earlier today, and it's funny because I really don't know how or why I stayed so long. Um, I, I will say this: I think. Um, for anybody that was there any length of time for you to get comfortable and think, oh yeah, I got this, it was a mistake. I think um, you always had to have a certain element of of foot one foot on a banana peel in order to stay on top of your game. I just think if you got complacent, if you got content, I think you got gone. And so I always wanted to just kind of maintain that certain level of, of respect and certain level of, you know, this is intense because you got to stay on your A game. Because if not, then it's going to be somebody else in your in your place that's that's hungry and that want to go out and always do their best. And I think just to get comfortable in a situation like that was, I think I I would watch those people go home, you know. And so I just always wanted to make sure I respected the position, you know. So you uh, relocated to that area? Is that did or or you stayed where you were? What did you do? Yeah, I mean, um, 
once I, I mean once I moved to Minneapolis in like 80 1988 man I was there up until like 2007 I ended up buying a house in LA and kind of being in both places Prince built a house for me in Minneapolis across the street from his house and and so I just kind of lived in both places I, I kind of went to LA when I wasn't working and and then you know I'd be in Minneapolis when we when we were you know so I had a place there and I could work out of there while I'm there so I'm gonna have to stay at the hotel and this sort of thing like a lot of the band members from I mean our bass player was from Denmark so it would be a whole lot of hotel days and it was cool for me because I didn't have to stay in a hotel I could stay at my house and so it was, it was cool you know but um but yeah I remained in in uh, Minneapolis up until about 2010 or 11 you know uh, and then left full-time to be in LA after that you know but uh yeah, it, it but it was cool. I like being in Minnesota because you know it's a lot of cold months and you just stay in and work. You know that's what you do. You woodshed. So Morris, you know, as a, a fan from the very beginning and going through all those different stages and and all, um, never wavering on on following because you know I knew that the music would always be there and the music always delivered. So. In the early 90s, around the time you came in, it was a really interesting period to me because you, know, you had the, the record uh, uh, label conflict with Warners and you had Prince doing all these different things that like puzzled a lot of people. To me, it was just Prince being Prince. And what I really liked about it is that, you know, he kind of went underground in a way at that time. And mm -hmm. I think he experimented more and he got more in touch with his funkier side again. And those shows back then to me were just killer. I mean, love, I, I was actually a little disheartened when uh, around the new tour and through that period when he was um, doing more dancing with the guys and less playing on his instruments. But when you came along, he really got back to playing the guitar. He did a lot of bass. He was just really into being a band and playing. And I just love that. So. Just tell me, what was the scene like at that time? Well, you know what really made that just to me, what made it, you know, especially having been there as long as I have now with the different uh, versions. I've been in every, probably every, at one point or another, every version of the MPG that he's had up until the, you know, 2012. And um, I think what that era was, is that band was so tight because we, we were like clockwork every day, whether Prince was there or not, whether we were on tour, that band would come in and rehearse like going to McDonald's. It's like you did, like you punched the clock. We came in, we ran songs. We we were like a jukebox. We had 120 some songs on our list that we could play at any given point. And, my, and I remember having to tell Prince one time that I'm out of room on the hard drives and on the on the because we were limited, man. Our stuff, the technology back then. I remember when a a a, a, a bought a hard drive that was like supposed to be this massive one gigabyte hard drive for like two thousand dollars <laughs> like it was one gigabyte that you got more than that in my 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 watch than it's like it's it's like it's crazy and so i just remember uh the band just really just like being able to get all of this music and he just wanted to just like learn everything and just like he was so creative and like oh man we, i got cats that can play so michael bland and sonny to me were less like a force to be reckoned with they were just like computers you know both done with perfect pitch and can memorize anything in any like in, in seconds and it was just like uh having those two guys as the fundamental foundation allowed us to be able to do anything man me and barbarella all we had to do is just kind of color on the top and the, the floor was there between prince sonny and mike that the floor the funk floor is what i call it was there and it was just like all we had to do was embellish on that man and, and then just the band was so tight because we played all the time you know, I remember how we recorded the record Exodus was just came from a situation where, you know, uh, I, I went in the sound stage and, and Michael Cohen was just like hitting chops and licks trying to, yeah, man, that's it. Trying to trick each other, like in the like missing, uh, so they do, and then just trying to shake each other and they really couldn't do it. They're looking at each other and just, and I'm just sitting there going like, this is like crazy. This is un, this is, and Prince walks in. I'm just kind of watching the situation. You know, I'm standing on the floor, they're on stage. Prince walks in and goes like, what's happening? 
And I'm like, dude, I said, uh, Mike and Sonny are trying to trick each other like in the missing notes, man. They're just, I said, man, we these dudes like could like could cut a record like this, man. I said, this is crazy. He turns around. There was a phone on the wall right by the door when you walk in the sound stage. He just he just he says, well, then let's make a record. So he turns around and he calls, I think, Ray Hanfeld, who was one of our engineers. And uh, he, he gets on the phone and goes, Ray, put some tape up in Studio A, call Magoo and all of them, have them move the gear into Studio A, and uh, we're gonna record a record. Just like that. And then bodies start moving. People start moving and they come in and they get the gear and you, uh, you break all of this stuff down, which is a task in itself. And just he just make a call and then people start running and just start doing stuff. And so they just moved everything in Studio A. And then we proceed to make like, in one day, we, he just called eight songs. Like we did eight songs and he just called changes. We made it up on the spot, most of that record. Wow. Billy Jack Bitch, like everything. It was all just calling changes and calling solos and then just picking a key, give Michael a beat, give Sonny a bass line or him play the line and we just do it or him, and then him just call changes and call solos, all right? And you know, so the, the outtakes of that alone is 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 worth his weight in gold because it's him just directing on the spot, and then probably post production another couple of months to like do vocals and lyrics over top of everything, and then added some a couple other songs like Cherry Cherry that was on there that we didn't cut. It's like him in the studio with Kirk, and and so it was it was it was crazy, man, because it was all spontaneous and it just just came out of just Mike and Sonny just grooving and just doing stuff. And then I'm like, yeah, dude, we should cut a record. He said, yeah, we should cut a record and then turn around to the phone and then call somebody and then wham, just like that, it's done. It's, it was crazy. That's the kind of creative level he was, that he was on and, and that he could do. And he could do that at any given point. I mean, we did other stuff like that where he just went in the studio just on a whim and just make some of the craziest stuff ever. So I, I think that band was super rehearsed and super tight and we, we just knew each other. And I think that's what made that one of the great bands is um, uh, just the level of, the, of camaraderie between the musicians and the tightness because we just, we were always together, you know, we were always playing. And so when we went to do something, man, it's like you could see inside of Michael's head, you could see inside of Tommy's head and just kind of know where we were going with it, you know. And Prince was such a good band leader, you know, we just followed the leader, you know. Yeah, the camaraderie, I mean, that's too what came through. I mean, you guys are just, you know, like they're saying kind of ESP or something and the way you were connected. And it was just um, the vibe, the whole vibe too, you know, it was like it had an edge. I thought he got an edge back that he had lost a little bit and just the look too, you know, with that gold symbol guitar and my tip her up there doing her thing. Uh, and then yeah. it was cool because it, it really, for us, man, it was, it was like almost like a return to P funk, man. But what I liked about that era, we had no fear. Like we would wear anything, man. We put on the loudest colors we could find, the shiniest fabric, whatever. Well, I had, man, I had clothes that was like velvet. I had a green velvet suit, a red velvet suit with a red velvet hat. We were just like, you know, I remember Prince basically, you know, the, the concept was like Superman Clark Kent kind of concept. It was like, he was like, think about it, man. I mean, he used to like for us to look like rock stars, you know, because sometimes, man, we'd just be like, come with some jeans or something on. He hated that, man. He hates jeans and t-shirt kind of thing. So he's like, y'all are rock stars, man. You should look like it. And he said, like, think about it. You don't see Clark Kent going to save the, you know, the damsel in distress or uh, uh, kill the monster in his uh, Clark Kent clothes. He put on his Superman suit. This is working. This is his uniform. He said, so when we put on these clothes, man, like you see George Clinton band, one of them had a wedding dress on, one of them had a diaper on, you know, Gary Scheider had a diaper. I mean, it's like, that's crazy. You don't forget that image. You go to a show and you see a dude in a diaper. That's like, damn, boom. You know, it's like, that's crazy. And so you had all of these characters that were bigger than life. And he wanted us bigger than life because he said, we have to match the sound. We got a sound that's bigger than life. We're gonna look like that. It's entertainment. It's like we want to just give people this total experience in terms of look, in terms of sound, in terms of content. You know, that was a, a big thing for him. It's like we gotta like close the deal on all cylinders. Everything's gotta be hit. And so I think that was a big thing. And um, 
at that era, man, it was no limitations. Like, man, we had Versace making us stuff. We had stuff coming from everywhere. And it was like loud and proud. We was like crazy with it. And I really dug that, man. I, for me, it was just like, it was very, I, I felt like I was in the rock and roll business, you know, that was one of the cool things about doing this. Like we had all of this crazy stuff and, and we could do that. And you didn't feel crazy about looking like that. You didn't feel crazy about dressing like that. Cause it's like, we're rock stars, man. We wanted, we, you know, we, it's excitement. It's all about the, the show show business it's funny too because or ironic because you know the general public and even like you know kind of the casual yeah. called casual like purple rain kind of fans um they were like you know where is prince you know we're not hearing prince much what's he is he doing anything i'm like man you have no idea he is doing some serious stuff you know you're just not getting exposed to it right now but he is not stopping he's got pedal to the metal but it was you know kind of, like I said, a little underground. And um, where did he come up with that Tora Tora uh, name and character? Was that just something in spur of the moment? Did you hear me, Morris? Yeah, that, look, that whole era with the name change, I, I remember asking Prince about that whole thing and just like, yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, so that that whole era with the with the no name Torah Torah kind of era, I remember kind of like what I heard about the whole name change on television. You know, I'm going in every day, and we're working, and Prince is down in uh, San. Uh, I don't know if he was San Juan. I think he was in he was in. Um, um, you know where Maite is from. He was he was down in Puerto Rico, and um, and we heard this on the news. Like Prince has changed his name to this unpronounceable symbol, and and all of this. And I'm like, what? So he gets back, and I'm like, bro, like, what's the, what's the deal with this name change thing, man? We're like, what's up with that? And he's like, well, you know, I was sitting, I'm looking out on the water, and 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 it's like, um, you know, God was telling me that I'm not this person i'm i'm this and it just really came to 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 understand that this this symbol encompasses me and and you know i'm kind of like dude i'm scratching my head like i don't know what you're talking about I, this is kind of like this is crazy to me but he just was like this is you know this really embodies who i am and i just i don't expect a lot of people to understand it i you know hopefully people respect it and um and he took it very seriously you know and i'm like well what do we call you man like and he said well if I'm always around, you don't have to call me. So, you know, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I was like, okay. It was only fun when it was like, he called you on the phone and you're like, go, who's this? And then then that's when the fun would start. Like, who is this? And he's like, it's your dad. I'm like, no, it's not, who is this? And, you know, and you kind of go through all of these changes. And so it was always a lot of fun because he had to keep coming up with creative ways. And then he finally would say something that would make you go like, oh, it's Prince. And it's like, oh, okay, it's Prince. And so, um, but I, I but I really think it was a it was a big deal for him because you know I kind of marginalized it because I was like, man, what what is what is this, man? Are you messing with Warner Brothers right now? Like, what's this all about? And he was like, no, nah, man, this is this is this is where I am. This is what I feel, and you know I'm serious about it. And I and I was like, okay, well then I respect it. I'm you know we're gonna honor that, and you know we try to comply. I said it's like Ulysses, though. I mean, it's it's hard. I'm no man, and so you, you, I'm having a hard time trying to articulate that but but it was cool it was a, and, and you know he went through that whole phase and and then he came back on the other side as prince i mean prince is just i always just looked at him like man this is a real artist this is a cat who is not going to be regular he's not going to be what everybody expects he's something else he's a, he's a star star and I, you know i never forget like the moments when people that that are legendary like sly stone and paul mccartney and, Whitney and all these people would basically come over to Prince and like and basically pay homage to him. And it was like, it was crazy because they really, he was so enigmatic and so um, off the, you know, uh, off the grid, like as far as that whole anti-star star thing, it was kind of crazy, you know, cause I'd see people who you think that people would be fighting to get their autographs, trying to get over it and holler at Prince. And it was like, it was crazy. And, um, uh, because he just was like that dude. He was he he was cool with being just on his own, 
and you know he didn't want to take pictures he didn't want to you know do the stuff that other celebrities like to do he just was like i, I got my crew i got my own cats i'm happy with that i don't have to be over here with you know with with so and so or whoever else it was just like i got my own crew and he loved having it i remember telling him about greg filling games one time and you know one of my favorite players of all time and i was just you know greg had called me about wanting to play with us and everything he said man i'd play with everybody and i don't want to have him really played with this prince and i was like yes yes play with us play with us and i'm gonna tell him prince and he's like well i got you and i'm like yeah yeah i know but i'm not greg filling greg filling games wants to play with us you know from from michael jackson from stevie and from steely dan from everybody and he's like yeah no i'm, I'm you know I'm, i got you and i'm like yeah but but it's greg filling games <laughs> you know and he's like i got my own crew i like i like my own cats and I was like, man, you just shot that down like that. It's like, he's like, oh, I got you. I got my own crew. And I'm like, man, that's crazy. But, but you know what? Like I said, man, that's what made it cool. You know, Prince understood the, um, the, you know, he understood my limitations. He understood everybody's limitations. So he had you focus on what you were good at, you know, because Prince always looked at it like a team. He's like, you know, look at, you know, he was a real big fan of Michael Jordan and, um, you know, the Chicago Bulls that, you know, when they were really doing it, Michael was one of his favorite players at the time. It was his favorite player at the time. And um, I remember him kind of telling me about how we, how the NPG was in terms of like, you know, like look at the Chicago Bulls. You can have Michael Jordan on one day shoot a 60 point game or, you know, a 80 point game or something like that. And they still lose the game because they weren't playing like a team. He said, Morris, you have to be like Dennis. You get the rebound. I'll shoot the three, you know, it's like all of those things. He looked at it like a team's situation, and it's like, no, we're gonna, we're gonna, uh, uh, you do this, I'll do this, and then we all just, you know, got our part to play in this situation. And so that was a big deal for him is to play like a team because he said even in the NBA, you can't win a championship with just one dude just at the top of his game. Everybody has to step up and hold their own. And I think that's what he always looked at. You may not be the best solo as more. Let Tommy take it. And you may not be the, this. Let the, You know, you just do the thing that you do. We're going to all lock it in and then we're going to have a thing. And that's what really made, I think, what really made that vibe like dope. Because, you know, we had a cat that could cover this. I, I knew electronics. I knew how to make sounds and stuff, move around and crazy stuff. So he just worked on everybody's strength and then played off of everybody's strength and not their weaknesses, and then just strengthen those things up even, just to, to try to get you to improve where you were lacking. But he just always would use your strength, and I think that was one of the big things about what made him a great band leader. I was gonna uh, ask you, Morris, about the keyboard, since you had two guys, you know, you and Barbarella, uh, how you decided how to kind of divvy up those responsibilities, and I know you were heavy on the organ. I don't know if that was you know your choice, or Prince directed you that way, or how was that figured out? Yeah, I think that was the church background. He was hes kind of feeling that at the time. You know, he, he knew I was from a church background. And, and I remember when I first started doing the thing with Carmen, I had only like these two keyboards. And I remember Prince coming to some of the rehearsals. And I, and I, and I recall him like asking me like after one of the rehearsals, they're like, dude, like how are you getting all of this sound? You got only two keyboards. Like I got my guys have got like racks and racks of stuff. And he said, your stuff is like fat just coming right out of the uh, – out of your two keyboards, like, how are you doing that? And I'm like, well, it's, you know, man, I, that's all I got. So I have to really know them really well. And then I have to just kind of program them to get what I need to get. But but I wasn't distracted because when you got a whole lot of stuff, you really don't master any one of them. You just use this one for a piece. And use, but when it's only, you got only two or whatever, you get inside of them. You know what they can do. You know how fast it can go. You know all the limitations. And so that's what I really had. And he actually wanted me to be a programmer for Tommy. He wanted me to like come in and like help them with sounds and stuff like that. And I just decided I didn't really want to be a programmer. I wanted to be a player. And I just kind of turned that down. But that was one of the things. And I think that whole church side, he just said, okay, you've played organ at church. We're going to add an organ into the setup. He never really had, uh, I think maybe in Bonnie's time, Bonnie Boy, maybe he had an organ type of scenario. But he just thought that was a good time to kind of bring that piece in. And and so a lot of times with, uh, unless Tommy already played an organ part like he did on Sexy and uh, I just wouldn't take anything that he played on previous records, like on the Diamonds and Pearls thing, but anything subsequent to that, 
when we made the records, when we recorded like the, the Come record and and uh, Gold Experience, I played all the organ parts on those records. You know, with the exception like Ricky Peterson and, and, and whatever Prince might do exactly. So he just so then the parts would break down easily on anything subsequent that we would do because whatever we played on the record, we would play live. We just you know just kind of play the part that we did when we created the music, and then and then we just kind of keep it going from there. But um, anything retro to that, then we just figure like, I got this sound, I got organ, so I can cover that and you can cover this. And then we kind of like, after a while it became second nature. We just knew that, um, you know, that falls in the Tommy's category. I got some vocal samples to play or a guitar riff to play. And we kind of divvy those up so Tommy would play uh, the, the horn samples or some Claire Fisher type stuff that was the string arrangement because Prince liked those to sound like the record. So we would take the Claire Fisher stuff chop it up, put it in a sampler, and then just like hit it on a key in real time. We didn't like playing the sequencers. So everything we did, we had to do in real time, which made it real crazy. A lot of people thought that's the nuttiest thing I've ever seen. A lot of people thought we were playing the tracks and we never played the tracks. We only played samples of stuff that was like recorded parts. Like sometimes because Prince was not the only guitar player, he wanted, and on some of the records, there would be two, maybe even three guitar parts. And he wanted to hear his own part. And he also wanted to hear his own background vocals because the way he sang them, nobody could sing them like that. And so I would chop those up and put them on the key and then just, it was painstaking, man. We had to rehearse and especially when we had to rehearse without him because you didn't have a lead vocal as a guide. And some of those vocals come in in the most weirdest places. And you had to memorize or write down wherever that came in so you could play it whether he was there or not. Mm -hmm. So that was bananas. It was like crazy, man. And it was a lot of work. It was a lot of mistakes. But when it was on, man, it was like people. I remember him having uh, Lenny Kravitz came over one night, just hanging out, and and he and I was there. It's me and Prince and Lenny, and and uh, he said, "Morris, just play your parts on this one song." And I played my parts, and it was like this whole orchestrated thing. And Lenny was like, "That is the nuttiest thing." I said, "How are you doing that?" And Prince said, "Ancient Chinese secret." <laughs> you know, he just kind of told him that. But it was like all of these crazy parts that was like just one cat was playing. And it was just like when you and then when you put that into what Michael Bland was playing with his drum loop, he turned on a two or four bar loop that just kind of kept the tempo. So that whenever I hit a sample, I know that the tempo, as long as I hit it in time, boom, you know, that that loop was the timing that just kept everything locked. But Michael Bland was so good that even on songs like Shush, where there was no loop, that that we got so good with timing and tempo that we could tell how quick or slow anything was from the instant we started playing it and he could make a correction so minutely that you wouldn't even notice that it was corrected it was just amazing it was just like like you said it was second nature it's just like reading minds and it was crazy and, and and i remember having a friend of mine who played with janet at the time you know cat doa he was a good buddy of mine who played with me in the time and um I remember him coming and kind of seeing me working on chopping these things up and then playing them and putting them in. And he's like, is that what you guys do? Like, that's the craziest thing I've ever seen. He's like, well, better you than me, man. I can, that's crazy. And I had one of my friends that played with, with Michael say the same thing. He's like, they actually tried it. And he said, man, we couldn't do it with any consistency. Like we had Greg tried, we had like this cat tried, we had a drummer try to trigger it and we couldn't get it to be consistent. And I would tell him, I'd say, well, when I first started, it wasn't consistent, but you know, he, you know, we, we, he beat up on me enough till I got it down and it became this technique. And it was a technique because Prince liked to change the show every night. He didn't want to play the same show. So he wanted to be able to control, like tonight, I don't want to come right in. I want to groove for a minute. So just keep it grooving until I bring it in. And when I, and when I started on the one, then, hey, drop it in when I get ready but not before. So we had to just, every night, it was gonna be a, a surprise how it goes because we got to follow him. And, and I remember another time going on David Letterman, um, you know, he wasn't really fond of David Letterman, uh, you know, and, and so, you know, there's this thing at the end where, where you had to shake hands <laughs> at the end. And he told me while we were standing at the door, he says, um, he said, do you have the, the, the gunshot sample? And I'm like, uh, I can get it, I mean, yeah. He said, okay. Now we're waiting at the door before we're getting ready to go on. And we've rehearsed it a certain way. And he just goes, okay, we're going to cut the, to go straight to the bridge. And then at the end, I'm going to do like this. 
and you do the gun sample, I'm gonna shoot myself in the head and then Coco is gonna drag me off. Got it? And I said, yeah. And then he said, no mistakes. And I'm like going. <laughs> so it was like, and it was a song called Dolphin. And um, it was crazy, man, because I'm like, I'm sitting there trying to think there's a big chunk of samples now I gotta cut out that I was used to playing one next to the other, next to the other, next to the other. And I had to cut out a big chunk and jump straight to the bridge. And I'm sitting there thinking, where's the one start for the bridge? And I'm playing the song and I'm looking at the keys, trying to think, which one is it? Which one is it? I don't know. And then I just hit leap of faith, boom, it just worked. I was like, oh my God, dude. It was just crazy because he would change it in an instant. And you had to just know where to, where to go to, man. And that's what he liked to do. He liked to have that kind of confidence that I'm gonna drive in, I'm gonna go this way, you guys come along with the ride, you know, come along. So that was that. That's how good that band was, and that he had the kind of confidence to just like do stuff like that. You're getting ready to go on a national TV show, one of the big David Letterman's one of the biggest shows on late night TV, and he tells you some stuff right before you get ready to go, and he's changed the whole song up, man, right before we were getting ready to walk through the door, and then just flip it like that, and then the the history is the tape. I've seen it on YouTube myself, and I just. I look at it and I just just shake my own head because I'm just like going, how did we do it? This, this was crazy. Because it's just like on the spot, we just changed it, changed the whole arrangement. We had rehearsed it that way for two weeks. You know, and then all of a sudden that right, it was crazy. And we do that all the time. And so Michael Bland gave me some good advice when I first came. He said, don't ever marry yourself to an arrangement. It will change. And it was the best advice I think he could have gave me because I, you know, one of your things is when you're learning something intently and you're like, you know, really, you know, trying to drive and press to get this right and get it, get it, get it. I'm married to it. I got it. I got it. And then press right before you say, okay, we're going to change it. And you're like, no, no, you can't change it. I, I spent a week learning that. No. And, and it's like, yeah, it's okay. We're going to do this. And it's just everything is out the window. It's out the window. And now it's a new part. We're going to make an edit and we're going to do it right before the show <laughs> and sound check. <laughs> So that was like, oh my God, this is crazy. So, we, but you got used to it and it made you better because you you start to really uh, hone in and pay attention. And you just remember the thing that's the last information that you've got. Business as usual until further notice. And then you make the change and then you have to lock that in. And he told me like, if you want to stay, man, you got to, I don't care what it is, hieroglyphics, whatever you got to do. He says, if I got to wait for you, I can't do my show. I got to think about what you're going to do. And I don't want to think about what you're gonna do. I want to think about what I'm gonna do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I had to, I had to get it, man. And I didn't read music. And see, Tommy, you know, he read music. He just make a change in the chart, and then boom, he just that's it's right. It's like boom, you know. And I think it, that was my lazy bones Jones thing. If I think I would learn how to read music, and um, it would make life a lot easier. But it really sharpened my other skills, man. It just really sharpened my attention, and to make things like I, I was very attentive to, like. Uh, uh, minute adjustments and, and changes and things like that. And it kind of spoils me now because I'm used to doing stuff kind of at the last minute and, you know, pressure, you know, man, we did it. We worked on a lot of pressure. And so I, you know, I just got used to that. I just got used to like in 10 minutes, you got to learn this song. We're going to go play it in front of all these people and after learning it, working on it 10 minutes, we're just going to learn it and we're going to play it. Everybody got it, got it good. Wow. Cause he's going to remember his parts. He's got it down. It's already in his head. So he's got it. All you need to do is get your parts. So. Wow. Well, I think that's uh, a lot of the reason why you, you stayed around so long, being able to do that. That's amazing, Morris. And I think everyone's going to want to go back now and watch that Letterman again, knowing what you were talking about. Yeah, it's, it's bananas. And that's it, a great performance, man, because uh, he, 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 like I said, he's just so good, man. He just could flip on a dime. And, and, and when you see it, because it was so crazy, because it's like you have to think of that first and then see it done. You know, he saw it done. He used to tell me that even when, like we shoot basketball, he never missed. And I would ask him, like, dude, how do you do that? How do you just shoot? And it's like Pleasantville. You just throw it at the goal and it just goes in. And he said, you know what I do, Morris? He said, uh, everything I do, I see it finished in my head first. So when I write a song, it's already in there. All I'm doing is when I play it, I'm executing what's already in my head. Like he played me this song uh, called A Crystal Ball when I first got in the band. Mm -hmm. And I heard this piece, man, it's just me and him in Studio B and he's playing this track. And it's like 12 or 13 minutes, man. I'm like, 
I'm like, dude, this is crazy. It's like an opus. We're like, what, what is what is this? And I said, who's playing drums? He said, I did. I'm like, who played bass? He said, I did. I'm like, but it's like 10 minutes long and it's, the music is moving, the tempo changes, everything is changing. Only thing he didn't play was like what Claire Fisher stuff he arranged. And I'm like, this is crazy. I'm like, how do you, it's 10, so, okay. So I'm saying, so you, so you started, you just played 10 minutes of drum, to 15 minutes worth of drums. Just pow, ping, pow, and then I'm gonna change the beat up. And then I'm gonna, I, I like, that's so random. How can you do that? And he says, I see it done in my head. So all I'm doing now is executing. So I did the drums, knowing where the changes are gonna come up at. So when I play the bass, I already know when the drums change, I'm doing this on the bass. Now I'm gonna go back and do the keys. Now I'm gonna go back and do my guitar. And he knows where everything lays out in the course of 15 minutes. That is, that's like Mozart. That's like crazy. Which by the way, was one of his favorite movies was Amadeus. And there was a scene in there where, uh, when Amadeus was walking in and, uh, they, they had already composed this little piece that the, the, the king was playing. And, and uh, as he was walking in, you know, they were playing this piece and, and they asked him, he said, uh, yeah, he said, what do you think about the piece? He said, it was nice. And he said, uh, he said, would you mind playing it? And he uh, said, yeah, I already memorized it. I already got it. And it's like, you just heard it just with two, you just heard a little bit. And he said, yeah. And he went in and he just played it. He said, I think it kind of went a little like this. This is what I think you meant. And that was Prince's favorite scene because that was what he would do. He said, this is what I think you meant. And then just kill it. You know, and I was like, okay, I completely get Amadeus now. I completely get why that's his favorite movie because he basically was seeing himself. That's what he saw, I think, in Mozart is that he could do the same thing. And, and I was just like, how? This is crazy. And he said, yeah, because he said, when I shoot a basket, when I do anything I do, I see it done first and then I execute it. So it's like, it's not like, um, it's just like execution at that point. So when he gets on the stage, man, this dude can kill because he already sees a searing solo. It's done in his head. He already seen it. That's why when he, even when he made a mistake, he could repeat it. And then it was like, it wasn't a mistake because that's his biggest piece of advice for me. And I still struggle with it. <laughs> it was, it ain't a mistake until you stop, Morris. It's not a mistake until you stop, you know? And I tell musicians that all the time now. Don't, you know, when, when people notice there's something going wrong is when you're looking at your instrument or you're looking at something and they go, oh, look, the keyboard player is having a problem. Look, he's got something going wrong over there. He's looking at his equipment. I had a keyboard melt down on me one night and it was one of the old Oberheims that he used to love because he did all those records with it. But it was just a, a hard piece because they didn't make parts and it just was really hinky. And, and But he liked the sound of it. And, and I took this thing and it just just died and it just made a death sound like <laughs> and I'm just like it just did it on its own I wasn't touching it or anything I just was playing my parts and all of a sudden it decided I'm gonna die now and it made this hideous death noise and I looked at it like what the hell and 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 um Prince just looked back at me and he threw a towel at me he had a towel and he just threw it at me on the stage and and I got you know after the show was over he's like Morris what happened I'm like what well, a keyboard it just died it just like it was just over there and it just decided now is the time to die. And it just made a sound. And I, I ended up pulling the fader down on the mixer just, just so it would stop. And he said, Morris, whenever that happens, throw it on the ground, break it. It's, at least it's a part of the show now. If you stand there and look at it like a deer in the headlights and people are going like, you're a distraction now. And it's like, that is, he's in trouble. He said, but if you take it and throw it on the ground, now it's the show. And I'll get you a new one. I'll get you another one. But don't wreck the show, like looking like what's happening. And, and it's like now you're distracting. Now you're taking all the eyes have gone over to you and your problem. He said, make it a show. Throw it on the ground. Set it on fire. Stomp on it. Bust it up. And I'll get you a new one. Because now it's showbiz. It's rock and roll. And I was like, oh, man. You know, next time anything like that happened, I'll be like, I'm going to throw it on the ground and blow it up. And then it's like, now, now you'll be on the, on the YouTube Doing a rock and roll moment, you broke your instrument like Pete Townsend. See how Pete broke up a gang of guitars. The good too, you know. So it's like rock and roll at that point. It's not a mistake. So you stop and look at it, and now you're like in trouble, you know. So that was just brilliant advice, man. And I tell all the musicians, like, maybe you can't afford to just bust your keyboard up, but the bottom line is the the principle is is just always keep it moving. 
keep it. It ain't a mistake until you start.